Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. What are the challenges in writing about suicide? And is it possible to reflect on suicide without imposing some form of moral judgment? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, tonight in Talking Books, we're going to meet with two talented writers, one an Englishman, the other an American. Writers of tremendous grit, intensity, soul and imagination. Marsha Boswell, the author of Understanding David Foster Wallace and Tim Greenland from Trinity College Dublin, unpack the unique and exuberant voice that was American novelist David Foster Wallace. And British philosopher Simon Critchley tackles the delicate and highly sensitive issue of suicide. This is a show about truth and engagement, creativity and judgment. But first... I want to help readers become less alone inside the life and legacy of American novelist David Foster Wallace. The novelist, teacher and journalist David Foster Wallace has been cited as an inspiration and influence on many contemporary writers, including Jennifer Egan, Sadie Smith, George Saunders and Elizabeth Wurzel. Some have gone as far as to say that David Foster Wallace's experimental novels make him the natural heir to writing legends such as Don DeLillo and Thomas Pynchon. Now, in his short lifetime, this versatile writer wowed readers with his remarkable creative energy. And as well as penning cult novels such as Infinite Jest, The Pale King and The Broom of the System, this talented writer produced a huge variety of wonderfully entertaining and provocative non-fiction pieces. On the 12th of September 2008, David Foster Wallace, The Shining Light of American Fiction, took his own life at the age of 46. Well, tonight in Talking Books, I'm joined by two David Foster Wallace scholars. Dr. Marshall Boswell is the TK Young Professor of English at Rhodes College, Memphis, and the author of Understanding David Foster Wallace. Tim Grinland is an expert in American literature at Trinity College Dublin and has just completed a PhD on authorship and editing in the works of Raymond Carver and David Foster Wallace. I started out by asking Marshall how difficult is it for readers not to get lost in the cult of David Foster Wallace. I think it's particularly seductive in the case of Wallace to fixate on him. Uh, this figure, particularly now that there's a movie about him with an actor wearing a bandana. And as a scholar, I, I insist upon resisting that impulse to conflate 
uh, him with the work. If you read an early interview with him that he gave to Larry McCaffrey in 1993, he said, when I'm done with a thing, I'm essentially dead, and all that's left is the language, and the language lives through the reader. And that really is um, the animating idea behind, I think, his uh, relationship to his own text, that he wants to be in conversation with a reader in the sense that his texts are supposed to be speaking intimately to the reader, but the, the text does the talking, and Wallace is a ghost figure, which is actually a, a, an image in uh, Infinite Jest in which the, an author appears at the end of the ghost inside someone's head. So if we can keep remembering that, that the only Wallace you have access to is the one that's on the page and it's a construction of language, then I think that'll help eliminate a lot of the obsession with the bandanaed guy with the dip cup uh, in front of him all the time. Now, he, he was very much on a moral mission in how he went about his writing, and he wanted to liberate the reader in some way, or certainly take them out of their loneliness. Do you think it's fair to say that you have to wrestle with his fiction? Because it's very complex. The degree of difficulty, which is loaded into the books, it's not a bug, it's a feature of the program. The difficulty inspires, I think, an, a, a, an illusion of intense identification with them because the amount of work it takes to extract what you get from the text, and which is quite substantial, a very kind of redemptive way of thinking about um, your own relationship to detail in modern life, uh, you feel as if you have an intimate relationship with the person who puts you through that difficulty. And so... Um, I think that also feeds into the uh, cult-like status of people, of, of readers who have gone through that experience with Infinite Jest. They feel as if uh, they have some connection with uh, the person who put them through it. Now, Tim, I'm going to put you in the very awkward position of describing what Infinite Jest is as a book, what its overall questions are. It's 1,079 pages, so it's vast, it's dense, it's very in- inventive, it's very vibrant. But how would you describe it? There's obviously a hell of a lot going on in that book. It's set in two different institutions, mostly. Uh, It has two central characters. One is a young boy in a tennis academy who is kind of struggling with uh, addiction and trying to deal with his own talent and his own loneliness. The other is a recovering addict, uh, sort of ex-con, who has found himself in a treatment centre. And this is where the other, I guess, half of the novel takes place, in this drug and alcohol recovery house, in the midst of all these characters who are struggling to deal with these, well, to deal with this desperate situation that they find themselves in. So the novel is about addiction at a very deep level. And one of the most interesting things about the novel is that it is so addictive to read. It gives the experience of addiction in its very form, which is it's written in this very addictive style and in this addictive voice that Wallace perfected. And it's it's got, I think, 96 pages of endnotes, mm-hmm. so it makes you flip back and forth. And it pulls you into this very immersive deep experience that demands a lot from you but once you get in deep enough it's very hard to get out. Would it be fair to say then it it makes the reader almost fanatical? Yeah I think so I mean in a sense that if you um, it's one of those books that like Ulysses Mm. maybe demands a lot of you and if you go in deep enough you will find that this book seems to be almost the answer to to everything. I mean certainly if you um, as you mentioned there are so many websites out there so many Wallace obsessives It's a book that is deliberately designed to give you this kind of jigsaw puzzle feeling that there is a piece that you just need to find somewhere Mm. and a book that is deliberately inconclusive in a way that makes you want to flip back to the start and and start reading again. And it's a book that, you know, the, the, the moment you finish Infinite Jest, you're going to be very tempted to go on the internet and Google what happens at the end of Infinite Jest and you'll find a lot of websites devoted to just that question. 
Foster said that it was written in a very dark time in his life and that it's mainly about loneliness. Do you think it is a book about a novel about loneliness, Marshall? Well, loneliness, I think, is uh, one of the drivers of addiction in the novel. I'm teaching it right now in a uh, senior seminar. And one of the fascinating things about the book when it first came out is that it was set in the future. Um, it's, set, it's set in the future. And so uh, Wallace imagined a world where people no longer sat in movie theaters. Instead, they sat in their bedrooms and they streamed entertainment through what he called teleputers or high-def laptops. That's how my students stream entertainment now, um, that we have caught up with the novel, and they do it alone. And I think uh, our uh, experience of sitting for hours and hours at a computer screen, surfing the endless web of the Internet, you know, with it, it just keeps going on and on. That is an image that Wallace grabbed and portrayed in the novel before it was a fact in the world. So uh, the one more, the, the additional component in the novel that Tim did mention is that there's a movie called Infinite Jest, which is made by the, the young man's father. And the movie is so incredibly entertaining that if you watch it, you will cease doing anything else and you'll die basically of hunger because you can't quit watching the movie. So the movie links the idea of lonely spectation, entertainment, and addiction all in one. So they're all linked, I think. There's no way to extract them. He was very original, but I'm just wondering, David Foster Wallace has been criticised for maybe being a little too smart or a little too clever in this book. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Yes, from a particular perspective. In a Charlie Rose interview, he took umbrage to the idea that he had made a book that was some kind of patriarchal imposition on the reader, um, that there was something uh, aggressively male about handing over a thousand-page book and demanding someone to read it. He was touchy about that, and I think there's a way to make that argument in the abstract. For me, I don't think it weighs up against the experience of reading the book, because yes, he was really brilliant, but he was also really funny, and he understood that uh, one of the obligations of a novel like Infinite Jest was to be entertaining. In addition to being addictive, it's also full of pleasure and funny and uh, enjoyable. So the the smarts come with some old-fashioned notions of narrative suspense and humor and real human empathy. So uh, I understand the argument, and and it's one one can make. For me, it doesn't measure up against the experience of reading the book. Now, I haven't read Infinite Jest but I know a lot of guys who have. And I'm just wondering, Tim, why do you think it is that it so attracts men? It's hard to say. I mean, maybe there is something particularly male about that genre of the massive novel. Mm. You know, it, it's in the vein of this sort of big pension goddess kind of mega novel, the encyclopedic novel, that is almost a badge of achievement to have read and to be carrying it around. With so you've you. grown up if you've read David Foster Wallace, that type of thing, is it? I think it is. Yeah, again, I mean, I'd mentioned Ulysses. It's one of these novels that people encounter as a challenge and people set aside a month to read it and, you know, really wear it as a badge of pride once uh, once they've got through it. And, and again, you know, it's such an immersive and such a such an absorbing novel that it is one of those novels that when you get out the other side of it, things don't feel the same. Marshall, David Foster Wallace didn't cope too easily or wasn't too comfortable with the fame and the success that he achieved. How do you think this affected his overall health and well-being, maybe? One cannot really say with any confidence without having known him. I would say the problem wasn't so much the fame as Wallace's inability not to be self-conscious about everything. That was what haunted him more than uh, anything else. It's a, it's a trope in the novels as well. But he could never relax into the moment or relax into any kind of fixed idea of, of what was going on. He was always aware of it while it was happening. So I think with fame, I think that's one of the animating ideas of that new movie, uh, as fame is just beginning to dawn on him, is that 
haunted sense that he might like it is mm. what drove him batty about it. He became, though, a literary celebrity overnight. So that must in itself have been a huge challenge for anybody, whether he had mental health challenges to begin with or not. It must have been very yeah. overwhelming for any person to yeah. have that success overnight. Right. But I mean, I think we we got to remember writerly celebrity isn't quite Kardashian level. You know, um, it, it, it did take the form of Internet lurking and so forth. But he continued to teach. He met his classes. He was a, you know, he went to campus and, and taught his classes and went home, you know. So the real high-grade obsession with him has, has accelerated since his death in 2008. So I think we should distinguish between what's going on now from where it was at in 2008. Uh, that having been said, I think if the Pale King, one of the components of the Pale King is Wallace appears in it as a character, David Wallace, IRS agent for the summer of 1985. And I read that as Wallace's reckoning with his own presence as a cultural figure, whereas in early fiction, he would have Alex Trebek or Lyndon Johnson or David Letterman appear in his fictions and say, that's not the real person. It's the person they are in the culture. I think the David Wallace that appears in The Pale King is Wallace's acknowledgement that he, too, now has become a celebrity uh, divorced from the subjective experience of his actual life. How manic a voice do you think he had, Tim, as a writer? I don't know if manic is the word I'd use exactly, but there certainly is a, a quality of really high energy mm. comic uh, comic power, in, particularly in his early writing. And if you read Infinite Jest is probably where you get that most strongly, but also in his essays from the, uh, from the 90s, his nonfiction. He developed this really distinctive voice that was able to be very smart, very intellectual, but also be kind of slangy and tuned to everyday conversation as well. And I think that's part of the uh, where the cult thing comes from, uh, the sense, as Marshall mentioned, mm-hmm. the, the sense of conversation. I think Wallace's own writing encourages that in a way mm-hmm. because you get this sense of just being spoken to by a very smart individual who is not holding back on anything. There is this sort of maximalist, everything is, is included in, in the conversation and this voice is sort of drawing in everything that's going on around him. Absurdly smart, maybe, then, would be a better way, maybe more than manic. Maybe. I mean, he yeah. played on his own smartness and the voice is deliberately over-intellectualised to a comic level, I think. And, I mean, you talked about him, the, the accusation that he's too smart mm-hmm. and that's something that, in a way, he encourages... It's also something I'd say about that is that if you look at a novel like Infinite Jest, the smart characters are really the ones who come out the worst, I think. He really dramatizes the problems with a particular kind of over-intellectualized attitude to the world and a kind of academic, logical approach to life. And I think he dramatizes the way in, in which that is its own trap in a way. How good Marshall is the broom in the system? I haven't read it. I know it's very philosophical. Yeah, it, that was the one that I read when I was in college, when it was a new book. It was published in the 80s alongside a lot of other novels by very conspicuously young writers like Brady Snell, Jay McInerney, Michael Shaben, Lori Moore. They all came out around the same time. So Wallace is part of this uh, wave in American publishing where young writers in their 20s were being sent out there with a kind of hip gloss to it. And so Broom of the System is a very, uh, it's a young person's book written by a young person. It has some philosophical weight, but the philosophical weight is almost drowned by the slapstick comedy, um, which makes it really charming. I think it's a charming book. It's a fascinating test run up to Infinite Jest. Uh, It's remarkably accomplished compared to the work that was published alongside it, uh, if you think of something like uh, Less Than Zero by Bredishton Ellis. But Wallace devalued it more than uh, I think it deserves to be devalued. So uh, I would say, it. you know, it's, 
it's in the neighborhood of a kind of John Irving-esque middle-brow postmodernism, you know, and it does lay out the groundwork for the book that follows uh, Infinite Jest. And it's a conversation of sorts from with Wittgenstein and Jack Derrida. Yeah, I mean, he said that, and I think that's, that's accurate. Um, Wittgenstein is name-checked overtly. There's a woman who was one of his students in the novel, and the, one of the animating ideas in the novel is there's a young woman named Lenore Beadsman who is convinced that she is simply a product of language. So uh, Wallace, uh, which is a funny idea to have if you're a character in a novel, but um, uh, Wallace was steeped in post-structuralism and deconstruction as a college student, obviously, because that was what was going on at the time. But he, his father was also uh, a philosophy professor. And Wallace, uh, as Tim said, he was suspicious of purely abstract intellectualizing. His philosophical grounding is much more rooted in the tradition of American pragmatism, particularly that of William James, who gets mentioned in both the major works, Infinite Jest and Pale King. So Wallace, I think, is drawn to Wittgenstein as a kind of pragmatic check on Derrida. If Derrida insists that language is all self-referencing and divorced from the world, there you have a vision of textuality that is really alienating and, and shut off from real things. Uh, Wittgenstein, his argument was similar but different. A word's meaning is its use in the language. So the only way for language to work is if there's a community of speakers who all agree on the rules of the language and they can communicate. So Wallace sees that argument as a kind of corrective of a purely solipsistic deconstruction notion of language. So he gets to be metafictional, while at the same time communicating to the, the reader in that Wittgensteinian notion of the community of speakers uh, or the shared vocabularies, to use uh, Richard Rorty's idea. It sounds very convoluted and ambitious, Tim. Would that be a fair description of all of Dave Foster Wallace's books? No, I mean, I, I guess discussing that aspect or discussing the intellectual mm-hmm. arguments that Wallace is carrying on in the fiction is something that you know, it's hard to discuss that and still convey how funny a lot of these works are and how good he is at setting up a comic scene. Yeah, I mean, they're wonderfully affecting scenes in, in all of his novels. And, um, you know, he's a writer who really knows how to handle character and plot. So it's, you know, I wouldn't want to, uh, I wouldn't want to scare you off picking up one of his novels. The short stories, Oblivion did quite well. Have you read many of his short stories, Marshall? Yeah, yes, I've read all of them. Yeah. Okay, so um, if I you wrote were, a chapter on that book. If you were to uh, advise where to start with uh, David Foster Wallace, maybe short story as distinct from all 1,079 pages of Infinite Jest, where would you suggest starting or beginning with? If someone says, what's the first thing I should read to make me want to read David Foster Wallace, mm. to be honest, I would ask them to read the uh, title essay from uh, his first essay collection, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, which has that beautiful Wallace persona and voice in its probably most um, advanced form, Wallace goes on a carnival cruise and observes what happens when he goes on a carnival cruise. And it's dropped the book hilarious and also really thoughtful and, and moving. If it's the fiction, um, I would actually suggest going back to an early story of his called My Appearance from Girl with Curious Hair, a story from the late 80s about an actress who goes on the David Letterman show. But uh, that's where Wallace first begins to critique postmodernism and, the, and, the, and irony and begin to offer kind of way of thinking about sincerity and, and, and empathy. Uh, and it's just a delightful story and, and very um, ingenious in the way it articulates those ideas. And I think uh, anyone who reads my appearance and thinks that was really clever, I really like that, then they might be a, a candidate for delving further. The last one that I think has become one of those texts that slides people in is the title essay from Consider the Lobster, uh, in which he goes to an outdoor lobster baking contest and speculates on the ethics of boiling lobsters alive. 
Uh, but again, it's hilarious, it's funny, it's observant, and captures what uh, is so attractive about his mind. Now, I downloaded his This Is Water speech, and I found it very moving. How honest or how reflective of his personality is it and his values in life and what he was bringing into the world of writing, Marshall? This Is Water uh, is from around 2003 or so, I think. And uh, if Tim will be able to speak to this, if you read The Pale King, you can tell that This Is Water emerges out of the ideas that he was developing in The Pale King. So that's what, I, in terms of what we can say about Wallace, I'm not sure. Um, again, those speculations were so unprovable, you know, unless we have access to his interiority. But we do know from a reading of The Pale King that the admonition to pay attention, to choose what you pay attention to, to be thoughtful and empathetic and imagine yourself in the, in the minds of others who are stuck in these tedious 21st century situations like checkout lines and so forth. All of that dovetails with what's going on in The Pale King, uh, where the, he's focusing on the redemptive power of boredom, the need to pay attention, and a kind of reckoning with the information overload of 21st century life and trying to find meaning in that kind of information overload. So maybe, Tim, it's a case of don't get swept up in all the hype about David Foster Wallace and all the weird, crazy websites and just actually read the books and give them time. Well, yeah, definitely. I would say just dive in. Um, it's easy to get distracted, but I think if you if you pick up any of his books, you'll see straight away. I, I think the recommendations Marshall gave there are exactly the ones I would give. The, the essays uh, are where you really see his voice engaging with the world in a really in a really entertaining and thoughtful way. And I think if you like those essays, you'll be able to engage with Infinite Jest in the same way. It's got the same kind of approach towards the world and the same kind of complicated comic engagement with modern life that you see in, in his novels. Do you think a lot of writers have emulated his style? Definitely. I think, I mean, he's been particularly influential in American fiction, but he's also influenced people like uh, Zadie Smith. She's, I think, on record as saying that he's a favourite writer. He had a long-running sort of friendship competitive friendship with Jonathan Franzen and they they both read each other's work very closely and uh, yeah I think a lot of writers have been inspired by his ambition and his desire to write novels that are ambitious and intellectually reaching but also try to get the essence of the human experience I suppose in, in modern life. Now when you went to the University of Texas and visited the archive how did that and what you read at the archive how did that change how you read some of his books or did it in any way? Well it certainly changed how I read his his final novel The Pale King which was published in 2011 it was put together by his editor Michael Peach and it reads as quite a fragmented novel but in a way that's not a surprise because he was not a writer who believed in wrapping his plots up in, in neat little bows. Mm. But seeing the manuscripts really made me see how how unfinished it was and how difficult it was for him to finish this. The, the, the papers for that novel are really, really a mess. You've got floppy disks, you've got printouts, you've got correspondence with accountants. The novel is about accounting and is set in the IRS, so he apparently attended tax classes in, in research for this. So it was pretty fascinating to be able to see almost inside a writer's workshop and see how he tries to gather all this research into a novel. And was there anything you wanted to ask him, if you could? Oh, that's a difficult question. I mean, I it's an unanswerable question. I don't know if he could answer it, but I would love to know whether he would have ever finished the novel. It's In some ways, it's such an accomplished novel. It's got some of his best writing, but it seems like a novel that really reached a stalemate. You just don't get the impression that he knew how to finish it or that he quite knew how to present it as a, as a finished object. 
And Marshall, would there be any question that you would like to ask David Foster Wallace? I, I, I was worried you were going to come to me with that one. <laughs> uh, honestly, I think I would ask him why he became so suspicious of his comedic gifts, because it's bewildering to me in a way. I mean, maybe he thought the humor in his novels made them seem less weighty, which is a really simplistic idea that I think was beneath him. But both Oblivion and Pale King, they jettisoned the humor that gave the other books their energy. And part of it was stylistic. I mean, he was writing about boredom and dullness. I understand that. But it seems like he was hit a bigger distrust of his own ability to entertain. And um, I would want to know more about that, maybe with the hope of talking him out of it, because I think it, it was sending him down a cul-de-sac that I don't think was very enjoyable for him. Distrust of his own genius, is that what you mean? No, distrust of his own ability to just write funny stuff, to be really entertaining. You know, you can see it. the humor begins to diminish in his work, you know, starting around brief interviews with hideous men. You, you, you begin to hear him wondering if he's being funny simply to be like, if he wants the reader to think he's really a cool guy and he's suspicious of all of those motives. You know, that's that self-consciousness that haunted him. Um, but it means I think the work becomes, um, I, I think it became less enjoyable for him to work on. The Pale King doesn't feel like it was a book that was a joy to write. It feels like a, a brilliant, unfinished book that was uh, a chore to work on in many respects. Last question, Tim. Was Infinite Jest a game changer for American fiction? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a, a book that was, it, it did very well at the time, but I think the after effects only began to be felt you know, when you saw the writers, in a way, imitating it and using it as a challenge that they could try and beat. I mean, in the early 2000s, I think, as as Marshall was saying, Wallace had a certain kind of prestige, but he still wasn't really a household name. And in terms of scholarly, academic work, it was really only, I think, Marshall and a couple of other people who were really paying attention to what Wallace was doing. But this really, I think changed over time as it gradually became more and more obvious just how influential this novel had been and how many other writers had had seen this and realised that they needed to absorb this somehow and, and needed to meet this as a challenge. So when you're 75, you'll still go back to it? I think so. I, I think I'll hopefully have the time then to, to, uh, to go through Infinite Jest again. It's a novel that you can pick up really at at any page and, and find something really, really fun and exciting and exhilarating to experience. And that's something I would want to emphasize here, because if you talk about the abstract themes of his yeah. work, you don't really get at just how how well he constructs a sentence and how well he brings you through a scene and just what a brilliant kind of poetic turn of phrase he often has. So I should really read it then? I mean, you'll need a few weeks, maybe longer, but yeah, I think so. And that was Marshall Boswell from Rhodes College, Memphis, and Tim Grinland from Trinity College, Dublin. Understanding David Foster Wallace by Marshall Boswell is published by the University of South Carolina Press. OK, coming up next, suicide saddens the past and abolishes the future. The philosopher Simon Critchley, on his latest publication, Notes on Suicide, published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cal. Thanks for your company this evening. Why is suicide seen as illegal, immoral or irreligious? So opens Simon Critchley's latest book, Notes on Suicide. Every 40 seconds, a person dies by suicide somewhere in the world. And every year, more than 800,000 people take their own life. Simon Critchley is one of Britain's most prolific and accessible philosophers. His notable reads include The Faith of the Faithless, The Book of Dead Philosophers, 
The Hamlet Doctrine and Memory Theatre. In Notes on Suicide, Simon writes, Suicide, in my view, is neither a legal nor moral offence and should not be seen as such. My intention here is to simply try to understand the phenomenon, the act itself, what precedes it and what follows. Simon quotes the great Scottish philosopher David Hume, who wrote, Someone who retires from life does no harm to society. He only ceases to do good, which, if it be an injury, is one of the lowest kind. Well, I have to say, Notes on Suicide is an illuminating, insightful and hugely courageous book, beautifully written, if a little uncomfortable to read in parts. Now, it would be crass of me, if not entirely dishonest, to say I enjoyed this book. What I can say is what Simon has done has to be commended. We all need to confront the stigma around suicide. Well, during the week, I had the pleasure of talking with Simon from his home in New York. So I'm Simon Critchley. I teach philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York. And I write... Simon, I'm going to put a big, wide-open question to you. Do you think suicide is a viable response to suffering? Depends. It can be. I mean, you know, in the case of, say, assisted suicide and um, all those debates, if someone decides to uh, end their life 